going to take a time now to recenter ourselves, to bring ourselves back into this place, back present to the Lord, to ourselves, to what's happening. So I'll lead us in a brief time of silence, and then Alex will mark three sounds representing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then this morning, I'm going to lead us in what is called the Nicene Creed. And you'll see as we get into the service how it relates to the teaching today. But after Alex sounds the, the bowl, um, we'll stand up and we'll read, I'll lead us in reading this together with this. So join me in consciously bringing yourself to a place of quiet, to a place of being receptive to the Holy Spirit and to the Word of God as we worship this morning. Stand with me, please. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and on the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life 
in the world to come. Amen. You may be seated. There are few things that can get a modern evangelical Christian's dander up like a discussion about the nature and authority of the Bible. We talked a lot about this in our teaching meeting this week. On one side, entrenched on one side, you'll hear people shooting words and phrases like inerrant and infallible and absolutely authoritative. In the other trench, people will be lobbing back descriptors like archaic or oblique and oppressive. And one must be really careful in attempting to walk somewhere between these two warring armies. Either that or just playing crazy. Um, these days, we're finding ourselves, when we find ourselves on the wrong side of someone's argument, on the wrong side of someone's belief, we're sure to get an earful, an angry response to our post on social media, someone saying something about that, and maybe even disfellowship from a certain church or organization, a disinvitation to be there. But for the reformers, the cost was much worse. It cost them so much more. Many of those who dared to challenge the prevailing views on the nature and authority of the Bible were stripped of homes and jobs. They were beaten, imprisoned, and even executed. Not excommunicated, but executed, like dead. So with that in mind, this morning we're going to pay some serious attention to what this idea of sola scriptura meant to the Reformers and what it should mean to us. We're going to learn a deeper and, yes, a more biblical way to think about and to engage with Scripture that keeps us from falling into the ditch of bibliodolatry on one side and benign relativism on the other. So pray with me as we enter this study. Jesus, you have been revealed by your word, and we are people of the word. Your word, scripture, is central to everything about our identity, our revelation, our practice, our transformation. So if we get this wrong, everything is going to be tainted. So Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, please lead us into truth about your Scripture, through your Scripture, and with your Scripture. Let us see what the Reformers saw so that we can see what we need to see in our own day and age. Where Scripture is abused in so many different ways and thought of in so many ways that are toxic or misleading or distracting. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome, everybody. My name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church. We're really glad you're here this morning with us. We are taking a break from our study throughout the year of Genesis, John, and Revelation to recognize the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation in Western Europe. And so we've been going through and basing this around the solas and then ending with an idea of the continuing Reformation. 
And we started off with grace, that it is grace alone. And last week we talked about faith, how it is faith alone. And then this week we get to the word, sola scriptura, or scripture alone. And the idea of sola scriptura, as we've said with the others, is not so much that it stands in isolation from other things, but that it has a special place. And again, as we studied in our teaching team this week and we wrestled with these ideas, we came to this idea that sola scriptura was all about freeing scripture to be what it was intended to be. That the idea of sola scriptura is not so much defining down what it is as opening up what it is designed to be. You see, the Reformers believed that Scripture alone was the only infallible source of revelation. And therefore, Scripture alone was the primary source available for instruction on all matters of faith and practice. They believed that tradition, while valuable, could be misleading and fallible. In short, they rejected the idea that the church needed a second or additional infallible source of revelation. That was tradition. The time of the reformers, the teaching of the church, the traditions of the church were held as co-authoritative with the Word of God, with Scripture. But not only that, they also believed that there was an infallible interpretation that came through the magisterium, or the hierarchy of the church of the day. And so you had kind of a three layered system that all had equal authority. Scripture, yes, but tradition also. And then the pronouncements of the church on any given matter at any given time. And this, this was what they were rebelling against. This is what they were calling to account when they said sola scriptura, is they were saying, no, tradition, yes, is valuable. And yes, we need the church and help for interpretation, but they are not co-equal to the authority of the Word. And obviously, like, like all of these, there were a number of verses and a number of different ways that they went about thinking about this, but the verse that may stand out the most to us and helps us understand is found in 2 Timothy 3. So the author Paul is writing to his student disciple Timothy here. He says, you, however must continue in the things you have learned and are confident about. You know who taught you and how from infancy you have known the holy writings, which are able to give you wisdom and salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Every scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped for every good work. Now, if you're like me, this is one of the very first Bible verses that you learn as a kid in Sunday school. That sure, I, I can't remember a time where I didn't, wasn't familiar with this concept. But as I got older, I started, to, I started to kind of question, well, what does that really mean? Because Paul obviously wasn't talking about Scripture as we know it. He didn't pull out his King James Bible and open up and tell Timothy about it. And he certainly wasn't referencing his own letters at the time. He had no idea that they would be held in the same way that we hold the Psalms and the prophets and the Torah, Proverbs with that. 
And those are the things that he was referring to. But not only that, because we need to remember too that he was that Paul was very emphatic that Timothy was being taught these things through human agency. That he was being introduced by his mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice. That he was doing this in the context that it wasn't an isolated study of some dusty book by himself, but that he was being brought into a community of faith and nurtured in that by people who had studied and understood and were able to help him understand those very scriptures. But what we see clearly in this verse is a, is a flow that goes from authority and beauty. Scripture is God-breathed. Now, let that sink in for a minute. These words that we see on the screen, hold in our hands, look up in our Bible study programs, see in places. That's not just a nice poet. That's not just a good idea. These words are God-breathed. Therefore, they have an authority that no other thing has. We take this very seriously at Grace Church. If you remember from Discovering Grace, or you ever want to go back, it's on the website where it talks about how we handle Scripture together as a community and how it is central to our very DNA as a church. And much of that rests in the idea and the affirmation that Scripture is God-breathed. But also, it has value and usefulness for us. It's not just like a work of art that we admire, but it has no real effect on our lives. It is something that is powerful within us. For in these words is the wisdom that leads to salvation. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that we would be capable and equipped in every good way. But if we're really going to engage with Scripture, we have to think clearly about what it really is. What is this word we are holding in our hands? You see, the Reformers, um, they, while they were very strong in their affirmation that it was Scripture alone, that it was sola scriptura, it wasn't Scripture in isolation. What had happened in the thousand years from the founding of the church by Jesus to the point, or the 1400 years, to the point of the Reformation, is that you had had this, this explosion of the church, the birth of the church. And then, as much as we like to romanticize the idea of the early church, you'll hear people all the time, we want to be a New Testament church. We want to go back and be a, you know, do it like the early church did. Well, let me tell you, the early church was pretty chaotic. In the early church, especially in the first 400 years, it seemed like all they were doing was putting out fires. All they were doing was arguing against various heresies that were coming up. And so the way they met that, this early church, is they would gather in councils, and they would come up, and they would, and they would debate, and they would bring these leaders of these various ideas, people who had an idea that Jesus really wasn't human, that he just appeared as a human. That he was just kind of a ghost who showed up. And then you had other people who said, well, Jesus was totally human. The virgin birth, eh, not so much. You know, maybe Joseph, 
They got a little close too early, but we just call it a virgin birth. And they said, no, Jesus was human, but he became God by being obedient. And, and he was made a God. And they had all these various things. And so by the councils, to get, they, they would meet together and they would interpret the scripture. And then they would come up with a, a pronouncement on it. And, and one of the most common ways they would do that is come up with a creed. The most famous of these is the one that was, we recited to come in here. Or one of the most famous, the Nicene Creed. It seems to be the most comprehensive, workable for us. And those creeds, the early the reformers were looking back to, they were saying, those are what we need to get back to. We need to go back to what the councils decided, what the creeds established about Scripture. Indeed, even deciding what Scripture was. Because it wasn't just Paul who didn't have his King James Bible. It was the early church as well. And there was a lot of discussion over what was going on and what would go in that Bible. And if we can show this slide here, you can see that there were people who argued for a very limited scripture. There were people who wanted to add some books that we don't have now. Some that were somewhere in between. And finally, Athanasius being the one who was the proponent of the Bible that we have now. But this wasn't established until about the year 370 with that. And indeed, even after that, people argued, Martin Luther himself, one of the reformers, argued that James and Revelation ought to be clipped out. I mean, here's a guy, right? Martin Luther is like sola scriptura except James and Revelation. We don't want that in there. But all that is to say, and as you study this, if you let yourself see it, you will find the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit all over the process. You will see the work of God in forming and establishing and bringing this book together that gives it such an intense value over just kind of offhand acceptance of sure, well, okay, that's good, and not knowing where it came from. But we have a temptation just like that time. And and I find it interesting, just like we studied last week about in the passage in Galatians about faith, how quickly people lost sight of how their faith or how their their salvation, their justification is rooted in faith. People were quickly looking for things other than Scripture to establish themselves in. I think that's why Paul was writing Timothy. He's he's like, look, you're going to have a temptation to trust in, in somebody's wise words or a fad or the latest leadership model. You're going to have a temptation just to to compromise the message along the lines of culture. And he reminded him, he said, look to Scripture alone in the sense of as primary. Let that be your guiding light among all the other things. And I don't think that's very far from us today. You know, honestly, I really don't think, and I put myself in this category, this is not accusatory in any way that doesn't include myself. We really don't know what Scripture is. We really don't know how to engage with it on a regular, consistent basis that takes us deeper and deeper. 
And we may not be bound up so much in what papal bulls <laughs> or layers of church tradition have laid on. But man, we're quick to replace that with whatever the latest fad is, whatever we've just downloaded from the internet, whatever the latest popular author has put out there, and whatever our culture dictates and says it should be. And just like the people in the time of the Reformation, we layer stuff, we make it co-equal, or maybe, dare I say, even of more value, of more prominence than the Bible. And like I said, that's a tragedy on a number of layers, a number of ways, but especially when we think about what it took for us to get the Scripture in our hands, in our language. Think about for 1,400 years, people who followed Christ never held a copy of the Scripture. They probably never even heard most of the content. If you were a Christian, especially at the, in medieval times, you probably were familiar with the Psalms because you sang them as part of Mass. And you may have heard the stories, but those were probably read in Latin. And very few people understood that. And so the Bible was reserved. It was locked away. It wasn't engaged with you on a daily basis. And so one of the people who, who exemplifies, he surely wasn't alone in doing this, but who is one of the primary people who saw this as a great tragedy and tried to work against it is a guy named John Wycliffe. Wycliffe, with his awesome beard, it's great. Um, he was kind of born a country boy on a sheep farm about 200 miles outside of London. But that didn't mean he didn't have the smarts. As a matter of fact, by the time he left Oxford, he was considered one of the most brilliant of the thinkers from that university. And they had to study on and off because of the black death that was taking people left and right. But once he left, he was considered Oxford's, Oxford's leading theologian and philosopher. And he came to the conclusion that every Christian should have access to Scripture in their own language. This was radical at the time. And this wasn't coming from some rebel rouser out there. This is coming from someone who deeply thought about the implications. The church was bitterly opposed to it. They said this about it. By this translation, the scriptures have become vulgar. And they are more available to lay even to women who can read, heaven forbid, than they were to learn scholars who have a high intelligence. So the pearl of the gospel is scattered and trodden underfoot by the swine, by us, with that. Now they oppose Wycliffe to such a degree that after he was dead, the Catholic authorities dug up his bones and burned them and then scattered them in the river. I mean, that's like being against something when you do that. But that's what they did with Wycliffe. But that's how strongly he believed that it was necessary 
for every Christian to have direct access to the word in a language that they can understand. And indeed, great missionary societies have been founded on the work and in the honor of this man who have gone out into the farthest corners of the world under great personal cost, similar to Wycliffe's, dying in the process, giving their lives up so that they can translate the word into every tongue for every people on the earth. This is core to our identity as Protestant followers of Jesus, that we believe that people need to have access in their language to the Bible. But how do we treat that in our own lives? What do we do? Because without understanding what it costs for it to get there, and not understanding really what the purpose is, and not understanding how it is supposed to be something different from just somebody's opinion about the Bible, we end up treating the Bible in a number of ways that are indeed vulgar to the Catholics' accusation, to their point. We kind of treat it like a magic eight ball, right? Somebody asked the other day, they said, do you, have, do you ever have, you know, you remember the magic eight ball? Anybody in here old like me, right? Remember, you shake it up and give you? Well, apparently there's an app now. You don't need the actual eight ball. You can just get the app and, and shake it and do it. But that's kind of like we treat the Bible, right? Oh, I've got a problem. Let me uh, flip and open the page. Or we treat it like a medicine chest. Oh, I'm really sad or I'm really worried or I need some so we go through. One of, the, one of the most common ways we treat it like a yearbook, right? What's the first thing you do when you get your yearbook? You go to the back, you go to the index, you find your name, you flip to the page, right? That's what we do, right? We look to the Bible like a yearbook. Where am I in it? Where is it about me? Where do I need that? Or we do it like a roadmap, right? I need to get from one place to another, so let me just pull it out and we'll use it like a hardbound Google, Google Maps to find the place. And look, do we need to look to the Bible for answer? Yeah. Do we need to look when we're sick or lonely? Yes. Do we need to find ourselves in the story? Absolutely. Do we need direction? Yes, it is. But it's just so much more than that. It's so much more than that. And when we re relegate it to some kind of just utilitarian, pragmatic tool, it loses its beauty. It loses its power. It loses its authority in our life. And while the Reformers fought very hard to free the Bible so that we could have it and use it, we need to understand that that doesn't automatically mean we're going to use it correctly or that we're going to think correctly about it. Like I said, there's, there's plenty of people out there who have assigned words and ideas to the Bible that make it almost like, like, like a spell book, like a Harry Potter magic book, like something that is just so set apart, as well as people on the other side who say, nah, it's full of errors, it's not relevant for today, it's oppressive. So yeah, we can read the stories, but they're just stories. And both of those are heretical tragedies. We do not worship the Bible it is not co-equal with God. It is there to introduce us and facilitate our relationship with that God. And at the same time, we dare not ignore it. 
We dare not relegate it to some kind of tool or just another story among many stories. We have to handle this correctly. We have to come to a place also where we understand that it is not just given to each of us, but it is given to all of us. And while we do recognize that its authority is singular, we have to also understand that none of us, myself included, no one is capable of understanding it fully and totally by themselves. The Bible is the book of the church. It is given to the church for the church. And if we are going to deepen our understanding, if we are going to walk in a way that really brings transformation, we have to do that as community. There is no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. You cannot just get it on your own. I can't get it on my own. And especially here at Grace Church, we've devoted so much to trying to develop a practice where we come together, each of us, starting with the teaching team, but then each of the grace groups, where we look together at the scripture that the Holy Spirit is giving us so that we together can discern what that scripture means, not only as an eternal truth, but as a very real word for us today as a community. I need each and every one of you in this place. Whoever teaches up here on a Sunday morning needs each and every one of you in this place to help us discern what this is saying, how we apply it, how we respond to it. The Bible is this phenomenal gift given to us as a church. Now, I dare say if I asked you what your status was with Scripture, a lot of us might put, well, it's complicated. I mean, it might be alive and active. It might be growing and life-giving. Or it might be, eh, meh, stale, standoffish. It might be really confusing or frustrating. Maybe it's on life support or even dead. Maybe the plug has already been pulled. If that's the case, I want to encourage you to think deeply about what it cost us to hold these words in our hands or look at them on our screens, to be able to discuss them with other believers in the context of community to understand the beauty of them, to fall in love again with the beauty of Scripture that so many paid such a great price and continue to pay the price for today. And then examine your life in light of them. Don't be scared to go deep. Don't be scared to let the Word do what the Word is designed to do. Give yourself over to that. And if your feeling towards the word is just meh, or it's I don't like it, or I don't understand it, it's confusing, 
immerse yourself more fully in community. Find help. Ask for help. Devote yourself to it. You will be rewarded and God will get glory. And the saints who gave so much will be justified in their sacrifice. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we transition now to a time of coming together around this table. Do you know why we practice this? Because Scripture tells us. We read the story in the Word. We're given the example in the Word, in the Scripture, of when Jesus came together. And true, He didn't leave us a doctrine to recite. He gave us a practice to hold, to taste, to touch, to be given to us. That practice is recorded in the Word. And because it's there, we obey. And so here at Grace Church, this table is open to all who are seeking Jesus, who want to know Jesus by grace through faith. On that last night, when he was with his disciples, anticipating the cross the next day, he took the bread, said, This is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And likewise, he took the cup. He said, this is my blood poured out. It's a sign of the new covenant for the remission of sin. Take and drink. And so as we come today together in community to take and eat and drink, we do so at the instruction of the word and in honor of the one who has given it to us. Thank you for being here this morning.